Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke. And today we're going to talk about net living a net zero lifestyle or nothing from nothing leaves something. Thank you, Billy Preston. So, And you're not going to sing? I'm not going to sing. No, not oh, this come time. On. Come all right. On. All right. So, Annie, we're, we're talking about <laughs> net zero. <laughs> Speaking of net zero, my singing. Um, define what is net zero. All right. Okay, what, what, do you, well, what do we mean by right net now, zero? Right now, it's a buzzword. It's a series of buzzwords. And I think it's like the latest, you know, jazzy, sexy, whatever. Uh, we call it living sustainably and designing sustainably and so forth. So, But the, the true definition, there are four possible components. Sorry for shuffling my papers so much, but I have to read from my papers. So net zero, and they call it energy. So we call it lifestyle because the reality is it's never just about energy. So there are some different, de- different, da, 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 different, does. Definitions, Definitions. Right? Thank you for speaking uh-huh, English with me. Mm-hmm. And so one is energy generated equals okay, or well, exceeds. But let's back up just a little bit. All right. Net zero presumably is referencing something, right? You're using it's, it, Okay. Zero, we're, saying, we're saying that it's about carbon. a lifestyle. So yeah. we – not just carbon, but everything mm-hmm. that we produce. But I think that's where the term comes from. Okay. Well, I'm not the scientist and I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I What I do care about is the fact that it's got a new jazzy, sexy name mm-hmm. for it's living sustainably. That's right. And so the engineers have grabbed onto this one and they're pretty excited about it. Mm-hmm. So what what I'm going to talk about is the fact that not just energy, but everything we do should equal the sum of zero, meaning we're not taking away from the future. So, but just for the purpose of definition for mm-hmm. the scientists. Because and you've the, written it down on your sheet The of paper. literal thinkers, I'm mm-hmm. not one of those, um, is that energy generated equals or exceeds the energy used when the energy is accounted for at a site. So right. where the building is or whatever. Or primary energy source used to deliver the energy at the site uses the site to sort to source conversion factors. So that's a bunch of hooey words that basically says it's still supposed to want the energy that's um, generated needs to be the gener- amount that's used. Mm-hmm. And so it all comes back to that. You know, all of the all of the four definitions that are possible come back to that one idea of what they call ZEB, net zero energy building. All right. So basically what you're saying is most people are going to define it as the energy that you use in a building or in a structure is equal to or less than the amount of energy that structure or building generates for itself. And secondly, you're saying that's a bad definition because we want to expand that beyond just energy. It needs to go beyond into right, I'm, I'm, what we say is lifestyle. I'm keeping you focused, keeping you going down the All road. Right. That's why you ask mm-hmm. questions. That's why I'm the person right. answering them. Okay. So, so really, what what we start with, if we're going to look at this as net zero, is everything begins with design, mm-hmm. and the design begins with the site. So, if we don't really know what the site is about. Uh, we need to find that out before we know anything about what's going to get designed to be put there. And presumably you're talking about a building site here. 
Right. Well, so buildings for homes or buildings for businesses. Um, and and the, the one thing that this would incorporate is the idea of could this site be used for some other higher purpose? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's farmland and maybe it needs to still be farmland. Um, maybe it's a wetland and maybe it's, it, it, it absolutely should still be a wetland. So what is that site? highest best purpose so we wouldn't necessarily go into nature and wipe out the nature that exists there uh, like mowing down a forest um, just to build some some building that could be another building could be reused or repurposed somewhere else so it requires a very different way of thinking from the very beginning it's not about how much money are we going to make it's about how we start with what's best for the environment and the people that live in that environment. And Man, the you've just you've just like wiped out three hundred years of American history here. So uh, this is so you, basically, what you're saying is this is a very different way of approaching development. Yeah, but it's also a way to to really make money because mm-hmm. if we're considering everything that's in that environment, things are going to be healthier. They're going to last longer. They're going to contribute better back to society and the environment. So we're saying start with that land. And then how do we design something that contributes to a lifestyle versus just keeps us warm or keeps us cool or keeps us out of the rain? Um, We need to have a lot more basic requirements beyond that. So we need to look at things like, um, in terms of the design, we want to consider a lot of different things. So we want to consider how we use thermal mass. We want to consider how we use passive solar, and I can talk about that in a minute, what those things mean. We want to talk, We want to look at what that environment is as far as landscaping and how that incorporates the ability to raise food and compost and uh, deal with other kinds of waste. How does it deal with water? Uh, in terms of getting water to be able to use it and also water that has to run off from it. And also, again, the materials that we're going to use or repurpose and maybe even rent uh, materials that would live in the building. And then at the end of that life of that building, it would be deconstructed. Okay, so if I if I back you up a little bit there, you're saying that any building, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a convenience store or your home or whatever, before you begin to construct something, you should not only look at where you're putting it, how it fits in the environment that you're placing it. So how does it fit within the landscape, within the neighborhood, and then how it's oriented and how you design the structures to take advantage of natural cycles and systems that might exist there at that property. Right. So we're not trying to make nature been to us. We're utilizing the nature of the environment and the beards and the bees and everything. The beards and the bees. The birds. <laughs> I don't know why I can't talk today. The, well, maybe the beards. You uh-huh. don't know. Well, you know, okay. a lot of white guys with beards. But uh, yeah, <laughs> if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> okay. All right. We won't go down that cul-de-sac because there's nothing <laughs> Nobody to construct. Nobody should have nothing a cul-de-sac. To construct there. Nothing no, that's right. <laughs> All right, so we're trying to optimize the land use. We're trying to um, make this building in harmony, in in harmony with its environment. 
which basically doesn't mean never build anything. You know, we're not going to be no, running and frolicking right. through the woodlands. No. But you're saying, all right, let's put some thought into this because so often in modern, so far, so called in quotes, development, somebody comes in with a track hoe, they blow down whatever happens to be there, they stick up some building that you know is not going to be there for more than five or six years, and then they're just going to repeat that process all over and somebody's got to knock it down and, and with no thought whatsoever of how this building fits within the environment. That's pretty much the case because it's all based on uh, tax revenue and tax abatements and all that kind of stuff. And so what I'm saying is it should not be based on that. It should come back to how the long term of this building benefits that site and the use of the land. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've, we've decided to optimize. We know what we're going to be building here. Now we're going to say, all right, how, what kind of materials, how are we going to deal with? You mentioned thermal mass. You mentioned passive solar, rainwater harvesting, composting. How are, yeah, I mean, we do that in our place at Blue Rock Station. But if you're running a 7-Eleven convenience store somewhere, if they still exist, um, how are you going to integrate thermal mass, passive solar, things like that in a, in a more middle-class suburban setting? Well, before I answer that, one of the things that has occurred to me is that this also applies to buildings that currently exist. Mm -hmm. So we're always making decisions about what gets torn down and what gets left behind. And if we like something or don't like something. Um, And so I think we have to consider if there's a neighborhood where they're going to tear down some buildings, you know, if those buildings are oriented to the proper direction and have the ability to be retrofitted so that they could incorporate some of the things you just mentioned, um, perhaps that would be a, a time we might reconsider that that's the best, highest use of that land. Um, we need the buildings to be oriented to the south and perhaps a little to the east. Assuming you're in the northern hemisphere. Well, I was just going to say, depending on where you're sitting on the globe. Um, but in this area, in, in North America, that's where we would... And, and why are you facing them south? Well, because we want to capture the warmth in the morning when it's cold out and the sun is low in the horizon. And then we want to be able to uh, help heat the building with that capturing of that uh, sun because okay. just like your car in the parking lot. I, I was trying hot. to lead you down the path of saying that in the northern hemisphere, the sun is usually in the southern portion of the sky. Okay, I'm sorry, but this is something that I think we all learn in first grade. The witness can proceed, right? Thank you. I'm on trial. Um, So, so the sun is in comes from the east in the morning, and so we want to orient the building so it captures that first sun as much as possible, and then during the course of the day, it captures the sun from the south, and perhaps even if we're lucky, some in the west, and that helps us a lot when it's cold outside, um, mm-hmm. and especially if we live in an area where there's sunshine in the winter. And you're describing passive solar, basically. That's exactly right. And that's one of my pit peeves, is how come every building faces the street? Like, that's the interesting, important thing. Well, it's you know. about making money, and it's definitely not about making uh, using the, the land. Right, but the, the, signage, the signage can face the street. The building doesn't have to, you know, when you're talking about commercial. So why not orient the building? to take advantage of free energy. 
Well, first of all, I don't think until recently architects actually studied or thought about those things. No, and I definitely know they didn't. engineers did not mm-hmm. either. So we're at an exciting time in development when we use terms like net zero lifestyle because we're beginning to say, look, we don't have enough resources to keep doing the way th- things the way we've been doing them. And with the crazy global weirding that we're experiencing, these kinds of buildings that we're beginning to talk about and think about um, – Uh, actually help us to control the environment so that if the electric grid goes down or we don't have the money for the gas for the uh, the furnace or other problems exist where there's tremendous variances in temperature. The environment inside the buildings where humans work and um, live can be controlled in a more efficient and effective way and put a lot less stress on the environment. So then from a net zero lifestyle standpoint, and we're still sort of talking about construction, you you look at it and you say, okay, the energy that we're going to use here, we want to create here as much as possible. Um, but it goes beyond energy. It goes into the water, you know, not only the water that we use, but the water that runs off. We need to deal with that. That gets into water systems and sewer systems and things like that. And then you start to get into um, the materials that you're using in the building and the well, impact Well, let's they have. just back up for a second, though, because the first thing we have to do is we have to create a building that incorporates passive solar, which we've just been talking about, but also thermal mass, because we want the basic uh, tenant of that building and how it functions to be able to hold a steady temperature that does not go below the cave effect temperature, which in this region is about 55 degrees. So it doesn't matter, uh, you know, like if you go into a cave in the summer, it feels cool. You go in the winter, it feels warm, but in fact, it's still that 55 degrees. So if we're always heating and cooling a building from that basic temperature, then, uh, then we have a whole different ball game when we begin to look at energy consumption. Okay, and then uh, what about water harvesting? Well, the other thing is that we, also have a lot of variance in water right now. So lots of places are getting too much and lots of places are not getting enough and is creating a lot of problems. So if we then go back to kind of the way our great-grandparents lived and we say we ought to be collecting water off the roof of the buildings, and they call that the roof, uh, the footprint of the roof, um, you know, that changes a lot of things for the government because of all the water runoff, that a lot of that runoff is not leaving the, the site. It's going into a storage area, and that gives the building the ability to have its own water. Okay, well, you are listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding you that it is the end of the world as we know it. Oh, and thank God. <laughs> and thank God. Especially and, today. And the end of... Um, traditional, and I always like to put that in quotes because it's kind of recent traditional building processes. Yeah. Well, let's just say a couple things about thermal mass. Okay. Um, well, yes. that. Because I just my want... My favorite. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so kids are studying these principles from the fourth through the eighth grade in a lot of places. And yet we don't seem to still understand what that means. And so... Um, To me, thermal mass is really creating um, the ability to collect energy into, like, for example, when you build a building with tires as the basic wall that are rammed full of clay, that clay has the ability, when the sun hits the wall, to collect the energy and hold it there and then to 
um, radiate it back into the building over the period of time equal to when it was getting when the wall was getting hit by the sun. So if the sun is hitting that wall for four hours, then it's going to take another four hours for that heat to dissipate and go back down to the 55 degree temperature. So we need to be building buildings that have the ability to create, uh, to use thermal mass. And that could be water, it could be clay, it, yeah, I it was could be a say, lot of substance. I was going to say when I was studying all of this stuff way back when, not only does any material, every material has the ability to absorb heat, but then there's a factor they refer to as the thermal lag, which is then how long that energy will radiate back into a structure or into a building. And that's something that architects don't seem to study or take into account because, uh, as you mentioned, water turns out to be like the best building mm -hmm. material. Uh, as, as I always like to say, it's hard to put a nail in it, but, you know, it's, it's a good building material. And it will absorb a lot of heat very efficiently and then radiate it back at a, at a very long and steady process. So I think um, to play devil's advocate, when you're doing construction, most of the people who are doing construction say, all right, how do I get in, get out in a hurry, use the cheapest materials I can use, get this thing construction, constructed quickly and maximize my profits with the smallest amount of labor. And you're saying that is not... The approach we need well, to we, take. Well, we, we can't keep going that way. And that's where the thank God part comes in when we say it's the end of the world as we know it. Because we, first of all, we have plenty of buildings for people to live in and have businesses in. But we don't come from a place of retrofitting or repurposing those buildings. We come from the position of it's it's utilized its tax life as a, as a write-off, and so uh, we've depreciated it out. Now we can tear it down or sell it to somebody else or move on or whatever. So we, ha we have to move on from that way of thinking about it. And we then come back to how do we take the buildings that currently exist and stop thinking that we're going to build cul-de-sac buildings um, where they're cookie cutter. They all look the same. I'm shocked sometimes when mm -hmm. I go to new places and I see that every house looks the same. In fact, it might even be some variation of a tan color. So they're all tan, but one's lighter, one's darker. And this is shocking to me because that's exactly the opposite of where we need to be. So we should not be in con the construction mode of every building is just, you know, on a street and we go from one building to the next to install the uh, heater and install the drywall and install whatever. It's not the way we can continue to think about okay, buildings. Okay, so we have to get out of this assembly line yes. mindset of life. And let me let me move beyond building because I think we've we've kind of beat on that to the point where we're going to. But then you talk about some broader concepts like in a net zero lifestyle. Does I mean even at the very basic level, does everybody need to own a home? Does everybody Absolutely need? Absolutely not. Does everybody need a kitchen? You know, right. these, these are things that we're, we're kind of talking about private ownership, which is the American dream, by God. And uh, what about shared? You know, what did you learn today? Well, humans don't share well. You know, mm -hmm. I, I have come to the conclusion in life uh, after studying this quite a lot as somebody who has a background in counseling um, that for the most part, we start out being very greedy and hedonistic, very selfish. And that's how we learn to walk and get what we need and 
diapers changed and, you know, food and all that stuff. But for lots of us, a, a vast majority of us, we never kind of get beyond that way of thinking about life. And so we have a hard time interacting with other people. And I think it's getting a lot worse because we have less experiences, less broad-based experiences. So I think one of the challenges is that, first of all, we need to think about buildings being smaller. That's sort of what you're talking about. And then saying, well, what can we share? Could we have a shared kitchen? So maybe there are a number of what they would call tiny houses, and these are not things on wheels. That's just a fad. But small homes that that have a lot of outdoor living space so that you have places to go walking or that you have a place to have a barbecue and that there is a barbecue. There isn't one barbecue for the six homes that surround that kitchen. Um, so your sleeping space and your um your basic living is in a building, but then you would share other kinds of spaces that would be called common, I guess. Yeah, I always think of like the dormitory kind of idea. You have your private space, um, but but then there's shared entertainment spaces, shared um, kitchen spaces, things of that nature. And, and we don't have to sort of take that dormitory idea that you're sharing it with a whole bunch of strangers or near strangers. It can be well, it could be families. It, I mean, if we just said, look, we, a lot of people have very close families, several generations, and they want to be together. They are together a lot. They just don't live in the same building. So if we just came from that position where maybe there's uh, older, you know, the parents are older or aunts and uncles or cousins or whatever, and then there were the younger generations, and each one had their own small building, and then they all shared a cooking facility. That, to me, seems like about the only situation that could guarantee to work at some level Mm -hmm. because everybody's got a different way of doing things, and some people are cleaner than others, so then everybody gets mad because you didn't scrub this or whatever. But if we just said, let's focus on families and how to work among families to create these situations, that would have that would have a huge impact. Well, and we hear a lot, you know, intentional communities, or even as people age, the nursing home idea is is abhorrent to many people. So why not shared living facilities where you depend upon each other, your friends, your relatives, maybe, or or people you've known, or people that you're getting to know over the years. So I think what we what we're always coming back to is the the idea of why do we do things the way we do them? Why do we feel that a single family home for a nuclear family that has all of the things, you know, duplicated in the little cul-de-sac. I mean, why is that our ideal? It's, because it's, it's about consumption. It is totally about consumption because it's the rich are only going to buy one of something. And so if everybody is buying one of something, you know, mm-hmm. poor people buy lots more stuff than rich people do. The rich people just pay more for it. So it's all about consumption, and we have to move away from that model. And it's the same way when we're talking about net zero lifestyle, is that we need to have places and learn how we can grow food for ourselves, because the food that is available to us for the most part, especially for people who don't have the money to go to or have access to a farmer's market or a local farm, um, or neighbors, neighbors who might grow food and share their food, is that we're eating food that nobody, not even our livestock, should be consuming. And this is becoming more and more and more evident. So 
we we need to have buildings that enable us to grow nutritious, healthy food for our families and for ourselves. But even that growing process should be from a net zero standpoint, instead of bringing in um, petroleum products to, uh, you know, augment the soil and and kill pests, uh, you know, use the things that are produced on that location to embellish the soil. It's that cycle right. of, well, of yeah. creating and composting sure. and then reusing and creating and composting and reusing. I mean, this is this is the way we're we're really going back to a pre World War II lifestyle but with computers. Well, and the challenge is that really our kids are not learning any of this. We just had Mm -hmm. some visitors this week who um, obviously have very intelligent parents um, and, uh, and and they have been studying a lot of the things that we do at Blue Rock Station and they were very excited to be there. The kids, they're all teenagers. And once they were there, they were completely lost and intimidated. Um, and just waited to be shown just where to step and all that kind and of stuff. And then settled into looking at their phones. I don't know, were they? <laughs> yes, they were. I, but. But they, and they also informed me when I wanted to, um, I, I said, we feed everybody at Blue Rock Station. Uh, and so we were going to have some chili I had made with some new potatoes. And they looked up in horror because they said they didn't eat potatoes. And I said, wait a minute, I've never met anybody who doesn't like potatoes. And then the mother said, well, they eat French fries at, from McDonald's. So I said, okay. There's, they're close to potatoes. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so we, we're talking about food. We're talking about buildings, um, transportation. I mean, some of these things are evolving. But I, I think of Uber and those kind of services as a non-ownership uh, right. Well, template. transportation is going to lead the way, that's for sure. And it's already doing it with things like Uber and uh, more systems that are going into place for people and, who have and transport. And why do you think that is leading the way? Because it's expensive. Okay, two reasons. One is people don't earn enough to afford to have an apartment and a vehicle. And the vehicles are very, very expensive. Sure. In an urban environment, parking the vehicle, getting insurance. Absolutely. And... Uh, the energy that goes in to those vehicles is very volatile. One day it costs $1.99, the next day it might cost $3.99, and eventually, I hope, it's going to cost $10.99. So I think using the Uber example, we're saying, okay, you can transition from this quote-unquote traditional process to something that's more shared and actually find the advantages and there is an opportunity for businesses to make money. Well, that's right. And it's the same way as a little bit that started out happening with Airbnb, which was uh, people were, and also couch surfing, um, where people are sharing an extra room or sharing an extra bed. And couch surfing has been hugely popular. Airbnb has been hugely popular. Um, although I see Airbnb as being more uh, upscale, but definitely couch surfing. Um, and you get to know people, you get to know the area, it's a whole different experience. So I think we'll see a lot more of those kind of things and they're definitely setting trends that are gonna educate us and lead us further down the pike towards this net zero lifestyle. Okay, well, we've got about a minute left and if you could maybe just rant a little bit about the idea of planned- I never ranted planned in my obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. Yeah, 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 because, because <clears throat> part of how this whole system that we live under has evolved is not only do 
we have throwaway homes and throwaway cars. We have throwaway everything. Right. Well, we, th- we throw away lots of things because they're designed to break within six months. And I'm not exaggerating. You can look up the term planned obsolescence. You, there are lots of things you know, on YouTube and on, um, online about all kinds of ways that we are forced to be consumers. So essentially we're saying that the net zero lifestyle isn't um, going to be a difficult transition, but it is a transition nonetheless that takes, must take It care. takes thought. It, it takes, takes thought. a lot of thought. Well, I find that very difficult. So anyway. <laughs> I've noticed that. You are listening <laughs> to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our producer, Adam Rich, who wins Emmys so we don't have to. And we would like to thank you <laughs> for just Adam. <laughs> for Adam for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your mess. And Jay, will you please eat your vegetables this week? Grown locally. Till next time. Mother Earth will sing and her children will be You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com.